The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. TC, lots happening in baseball in the last week. Are you ready to dig in once more? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have, we have actual baseball this week. Actual, real-life, honest-to-goodness baseball. I think Jared Kelnick just ripped a dinger out to left center as, uh, as manager Scott Service was, uh, was saying that the prospects will let you know when they're ready. Uh, sweet <laughs> bit of poetic justice in a clip I saw right before hopping on. Nice. A storyline we'll keep following. But in that vein, last week we talked all about rotation depth uh, through the game uh, with rotation depth, even the bullpen depth before that, and how these teams are shaking out on the pitching side of things. And now we're really ready to dig into the offensive side of things as we get geared up for the actual season, getting ready to look at the top five lineups in baseball. I know we both have like we have like a Venn diagram's worth of groups, right? We have a few in one circle, a few in the other, and a few in the middle. So, TC, where do you want to start here with baseball's best lineups? Well, I guess let's go. Uh, we can start with our our fifth team and kind of work our way backwards and see where we compare and and uh, we can see if there's any teams that we overlooked that maybe just missed the cut. Because as I was looking through it, there were a lot of good lineups. There are a lot of good lineups. I wouldn't say that the depth of these lineups is overwhelming beyond the starters, but the uh, in terms of the starting eight to nine, there's a, there's a pretty good group here. Really solid all around for sure. A lot, a lot of those teams, I think, I was looking at kind of on the periphery where it's like, wow, if, if it breaks this way or that way for these guys. Uh, but like you were saying, starting in the back end, which leaves us with who? My fifth team is the New York Mets. I think I'm a little higher on the Mets than some. But I think the Lindor acquisition is huge for them. I mean, they were second in the majors by WRC Plus last year. And they've now added Lindor in place of Rosario and Jimenez, who were two of their weaker producers last year. Uh, I love the outfielders. Conforto and Nimmo are both solid. They both had big years last year. And we could see them fall back a little bit. But I like him out there. I like Dominic Smith. I like Pete Alonso to have a slightly better year. I'm not a huge James McCann fan, but I think that this year they might not regret that deal yet. I think they'll regret that deal next year, but this year he might be okay. J.D. Davis is a totally fine guy at third base. He'll be a two to three war kind of guy. And I, beyond though, they're starting eight. I mean, as I was saying before, this is kind of a classic team beyond their starting eight. If anybody gets hurt, they're in trouble. I don't love 
the prospect of Albert Almora or Kevin Pillar playing a lot of minutes. I don't love, uh, you know, Luis Guillaume as a, as a backup, getting a lot of time. They're good backups. They they have good glove first guys who can step in, but I don't love them if they get significant time. But if they do stay healthy, I don't really see much of a soft spot in this lineup. What do you think? I think the last part there, if they do stay healthy, is really critical. That ultimately, this was on my mind through the week as we kind of prepped all of all of this all of these teams right and we thought like last week we were talking how many innings can a rotation really go this week I'm like well you know what like it's really the the focus has been on pitching in that regard a lot and understandably but it's going to be the same for hitters it's going to be like oh my goodness who's been the healthiest who's going to be like there was a quote last year I forget which team's executive said it but it's going to be like they said something like whoever has the least impact from COVID will be in the best spot to win. And while the situation might be a little different, I think it's really similar this year. That was my one question when it came to this group was the outfield. Like, how does that shake out between Conforto, Nimmo, Smith, McNeil, PR, Almora? Like, obviously, the, the last two guys you're mentioning, depth pieces, right? But you mentioned you like Dominic Smith. Do you like him in left field instead of first base where he's actually a, a really good defender? And do you think he can actually keep up some of the hitting that he got to last year? Like, he never shown this kind of power before. Do you think he can sniff that again? Do you think he's going to exceed it? Or do you think it's going to be like a big old regression monster for Dominic Smith? Well, to answer your two questions, no, I don't like him in left field. And yes, I do think he can sustain the power. I don't see why not. I mean, it was small samples, of course, but he's a guy who's coming into his prime. He's a guy who's always looked like he would produce big time power. And they've been waiting for it. I don't know that he'll be at the levels that he was in 2020 over a, over a full season, especially because he's not necessarily a middle of the order bat in that lineup. They're not going to have to rely over much on him. And he'll get a fair amount of time off with, I mean, that's why Almora and Pilara are there, both for the defensive reasons, late in games, and to rest these guys against against lefties. I mean, in some ways, the 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 Mets have built the perfect little outfield machine here with, you know, Dominic Smith and Nimmo and Conforto in there for regular time. And Pilar and, and uh, Almora are the perfect right-handed compliments. They're, they're perfect defense first guys. I mean, if I'm looking at Smith's numbers now, yeah, I mean, he had a 299 ISO last year. That's really good. But he was 243 the year before, 196, 198 before that. Like, those aren't that far off. I don't see any reason why for a guy who's now who finally got some regular playing time last year, he's 25 years old. I wish he didn't have to play left field, but you got to get his bat in the lineup. Yeah. And actually that's, you mentioned his ISOs. So, and the regular playing time, I think that's really critical. I, I think that's one of those things that when it comes to player development, we always overlook how consistently guys are able to play or when they're pulled, like, Maybe Smith continually gets pulled in the seventh or eighth inning as a defensive replacement, and his his maybe he just had his last at bat in the bottom half of that order. But yeah, I, I think regular playing time is going to be critical for him. He did show an ability to uh, really drive the ball out when he hit it in the air. His home run to fly ball rate, as he's been in the majors the last two years, is remarkably similar. And taking a look at that, it's. It was 22.4% in 2019 when he got 89 games worth of playing time. 22.2% last year when he got regular playing time. And I don't know if it'll shake out like that the whole year. The, the league average is about 14%. So I don't know that he is 
0.8% better than the league at hitting homers when he hits a fly ball, but it seems like he knows how to make it count. It seems like he has shown a demonstrated ability at the major league level to drive the ball. And uh, when it comes to lumbering left fielders, yeah, maybe not ideal, but certainly like, well, what else are you going to do? He's kind of forcing you to put his bat in the lineup. You know, and, and another kind of mitigating factor here is that the the Mets might be have a pretty decent rotation to protect their outfielders. I mean, Stroman's going to get the ball on the ground a ton. DeGrom's going to strike out 30% of hitters. I mean, he's going to have to field the ball at some point, but it's not like they have a, a real fly, haul, a fly ball heavy approach between their five guys. That's true. And I think that, you know, what, what else I'm curious about outside of the outfield, and I guess kind of in the outfield, depending on where he ends up playing, is Jeff McNeil. Like, do you think, you mentioned J.D. Davis is fine. I love that. he. Well, he's fine. <laughs> uh, but do you think Jeff McNeil settles in playing third base more as J.D. Davis maybe gets relegated to more of a bench role, more of a spot player than, than the third base regular? I don't know. I think McNeil's going to be mostly at second base for most of the season. And I'll say this about, about J.D. Davis. You know, I don't want to knock the guy. He is a fine player. He's got good power. I've seen him do great things. But when the rumors were out there about the Cubs trading Chris Bryant for J.D. Davis, I know that Davis has four years of control, but I felt sick to my stomach. Like straight up, I was like, if the Cubs trade Chris Bryant, our like hometown World Series winning superstar guy, they trade him for J.D. Davis, who was just, he is what his name suggests. He is like a very average <laughs> white male third baseman. And I just like, he's a third baseman who's fine. And I know that the four years of control, that's a big deal, I guess, but there's gotta be some, uh, you know, marginal value to having a guy like Bryant in town. And I'm not the biggest Bryant fan in terms of his on-field contributions. I mean, if he gets, if he twists an ankle, he's kind of sunk, but I'd rather just, just hold on to the guy and let him walk. Let's do it that way. Don't, don't try to feed us JD Davis. I, I can get behind that kind of sentiment that, uh, a Chris Bryant type certainly has more value to the team uh, than than a JD Davis type long term. That's one of those where it's like you really have to look at like that's like maybe a fan lens which is justified, and then it's almost like how often are we going to look at this with a ledger? I know we talked about this in the past with the Cleveland deal with the Mets for Lindor for Carrasco about like who's really looking at the ledger and how are they valuing it. Uh, a really interesting, I guess, side note to a fine player being fine, but where he fits in the scheme and shape of a team really matters. Uh, does anybody else stick out to you on the Mets when it comes to their lineup? Like, do you like, so I guess I'm asking a leading question here. I'm really asking, even with Smith, like you can't think of him without thinking of Pete Alonso. Do you think he's going to settle in between his two major league years so far? Like his rookie year, amazing, smashed through every little wall or obstacle that came up to him, made everything look puny last year really kind of struggle. Do you think he settles in a middle ground or is he more one or the other? No, I think that's exactly right. I think he, he kind of becomes a, finds a, a point between those two players. I mean, it's kind of a classic ball player construction to have your, your one monster season and then your one disappointing season and then to kind of settle into a midpoint between those two. I mean, his first, I mean, his power is insane for sure, but you know, rookies often are able to kind of surprise the league a little bit and then pitchers figure him out a little bit and, start attacking places where they're not used to making contact or whatever it may be. And there's an adjustment period. I, I think Alonzo is going to figure, figure it out, but I don't know that he's going to be necessarily, I mean, he might hit 50 home runs again, 
that's certainly on the table for him. But he's going to be that kind of slugger. I don't think he's going to be. I don't think he's going to be like an MVP kind of guy. Yeah, as I, as you were talking there, he reminded me a little bit of Pat Burrell in the sense where when he came up, there were like sky high expectations, which Alonzo kind of set with his rookie year, right? And then people were like caught off guard by his regression last season. But really, if he settles into that like solid above average guy, you go and look at like Pat Burrell's Fangraphs page, you're going to see a really solid player for a long time. I, I think that'll be interesting to watch, especially, I guess, with the development of the CBA. Uh, we're, we're kind of assuming a DH, a universal DH yeah. at some point, right? Where it's like maybe that solves some of this problem or quote unquote problem for the Mets in terms of who plays where and why. But when it comes to their lineup as hitters, it really does seem like they kind of reflect the pitching aspect of their team and that they've added a lot of depth in a lot of places. So that makes sense to me as the, as, as the number five group for sure. Uh, what do you think when it comes to a fourth team? The fourth place lineup here I have, I'm sticking in the National League, Atlanta Braves, who I believe I might have had fourth for pitching depth too for, for their starters. But I think you did. Braves are in that spot again then. I guess I like them. Largely because of their their core unit here, right? I mean, they have a tremendous core of, of offensive players here. I mean, they're one of the only only teams that have legitimate two legitimate MVP candidates in Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna. Marcelo Zuna was... I don't know if he's going to be as good as he was last year when he was an absolute monster, but he fits that lineup really well. He's great protection for Freddie Freeman. Ozzie Albies is going to continue to be a, a steady guy. He's got some some potential that you'd like to see. Maybe he could become kind of that routine all-star. If, if not, then you think he's, going to be, he's still going to be a, a fine regular, a guy you want at second, but you're happy to have at second base. Dansby Swanson, I'm I'm – I think higher on than most, I guess. I like Dansby Swanson. I think he's totally serviceable as a shortstop. He's not a he's not a top shortstop by any means. He had a, he had a great year last year. I think he'll be able to more or less continue at that rate. We'll maybe see a little bit of, of regression from him, but not a ton. Where I still think he's a he's a solid guy to have in the lower part of your order. And Travis Darno is really one of the better offensive catchers. He's not the guy I would necessarily handpicked to bat cleanup in my lineup, but and he's going to be there or fifth probably for the Braves, but he's still fine there. And given the upside of the of their core talent and really the like, really the high floor of the of the group that's Acuna and Freeman and Albies, Darno was a fine fine compliment to those guys. Yeah, I, I like the idea of a high floor. I like the idea of describing them that way because it really does. I mean, we talked about that with pitching too, where it just does so much more for the team. When you have a high floor, you can kind of play around. You can kind of do like a plug and play with guys like Darno. Uh, I don't know that he is, like you were saying, an ideal fourth hitter in your lineup, but I don't know if you need an ideal fourth hitter in your lineup when you have Acuna, when you have Freeman, when you have Ozuna. There are a couple things, as you were even talking about it, I'm like, there's a note on this guy, there's a note on this guy. Ozuna, if I remember correctly, I think it was Ben Clemens at Fangraphs, and I'm going to have to check that. But he had an, uh, this really interesting piece in terms of how Ozuna's swing and his attack angle really influences his uh, batted ball profile. And I'm really curious to see if that'll keep up. Like last year, like you were saying, total monster. I'm very curious to see how that plays out over the long term. Ozzy Albies, love him. Absolutely love him. Uh, one of those guys, like just physically, you don't see players who look like him, who are his size, doing the things he does. 
Uh, even when he makes a leaping catch that like another guy at second base might not have to jump as high for, like it's thrilling. Um, and even beyond that, when it comes to him, I'm very curious. I actually wrote this up at Baseball Prospectus a week or two ago about what his next step might be as a hitter. And he's not very good as a switch-handed hitter. Like if he just would kind of give up switch hitting, he might service his game a little bit more. So the difference between all these hitting switch-handed, it's like he's Nelson Cruz or Nick Ahmed, right? Like that is a chasm between those two players. So I'm very curious uh, how it really plays out. Because as a left-handed hitter, he's only got a 753 OPS for his career. Uh, whereas the right-handed hitter, he is just, he's awesome. Di- dialing up against lefties is one thing, but when you don't see them as much, when they only pitch about a third of the innings that righties do, it really, you know, I'm curious to see what that developmental path would look like, if his numbers would suffer that much, or if it would really kind of buoy him just a little bit more and help him take a bigger step overall. Yeah, so that was, uh, so he's much better as a right-handed hitter, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's very confusing considering he's spending most of his time batting left-handed. Right. <laughs> it does kind of beg the question, I guess, of what that would look like if you were hitting right-handed all the time. And those splits are drastic enough that it does make you kind of wonder. I mean, you don't want to see prime Albies only for only, you know, 30 games of the year, right? 35 games of the year. You want him, want that guy as often as possible. Right, and that's the thing. Like, what makes him so exciting or a big part of it is that he's 24. He's just 24, like two months ago he's going to play all season at that age guys who debut as young as he does have like hall of fame trajectory just based on what got them there so soon right and that gd extension he's going to be making zero dollars pretty much for the next 12 years or whatever that whatever that extension, that extension was that he signed ah, i'm so mad at that extension yeah. still yeah that and the acuna deal really that also kind of shines a light on who which players take those deals they're often the players uh from the dominican or from uh from countries that aren't the U.S., right? You don't see the U.S.-born players taking those kinds of contracts. Even like that came out in, in the Seattle fiasco, what was it, last week, that uh, Mather was saying, we, we brought this deal to Kelnick, he didn't want it. And it's like, well, yeah, a, a lot of guys don't. Evan White took it, but those guys don't. They come up a different way. They don't quite have the, the same perspective on those those kinds of contracts. Uh, whereas Acuna and Albies, maybe they are set for life, but uh, don't quite fit the scale you would expect their talents to meet. In Major League Baseball. One note that I have here on Travis Darno is that he did have a monster BABIP last year. And BABIP is like, it can be informative, but it can also be misleading, right? Because it's like, how is he getting to the ball? And, you know, what was the defense doing that day? What was the wind doing that day? All sorts of things play into it. But his BABIP last year was 411 through the 44 games he played. So even as a catcher, he, he played, right, that's the appropriate response. He plays uh, fewer games as a catcher. It has even less of a chance of regressing as it would uh, over the course of a full season. I don't know if he hits quite the same next year. I don't know if he hits 321, but like we were saying, I guess he doesn't need to. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, that's insane. He's not going to hit 321 again. I mean, his his WRC plus 144 last year, that's so much higher than his career average. I mean, most years he's been below average, I guess, by that count. But he's, but he's, he's a catcher. You don't really need him to be that guy. You expect Dansby Swanson to get a little bit better as he nears his prime. Same with, as you said, about Albies and uh, and Acuna. Freddie Freeman, you figure, is never going to age. He's just going to be the same guy for until he's 40, just like Chipper Jones before him. And then you hope for more out of Austin Riley, too. So you, you hope that there's enough balance 
between the rest of the guys that that he shouldn't have to be another shouldn't have to hit 321 again to be a valuable piece of their lineup. Now, my question is, you sound very complimentary when talking about these Braves. You sound like you like the Braves. And yet, <laughs> and yet, you do not have them in your top five lineups. Tell me why. I don't. I think I think uh, I really wanted to lean into a couple of the other teams. So as we prep this, I had this note too in my head of like, it's not that I don't want to repeat the same teams you do, because I think it would be interesting if we came out with very similar teams up top. Uh, but I also think that Baseball is just weird, and some of the other teams like trying to really focus on what these teams quote could be capable of. I like this lineup a lot. I really do. Like you were saying, I think it's hard. Like even adding Jake Lamb as as their bench first baseman, I think that you could definitely expect a step up from uh, from Austin Riley. You have Lamb who could play third base too, and Camargo who can play all over. Is it because of Christian Pashi? <laughs> Is he why you don't like him? <laughs> I hate light-hitting hit, light center fielders. Uh, no, he's another guy who, who could be a lot of fun, who could just, he could do enough with the bat because his center field defense is so good. Uh, and also one of those things, again, like, he's going to be a guy, he's going to keep developing. Um, so maybe, I don't so know, my, my other team. How do you pronounce his name? Uh, I always said it, Pache. I have a Pache? feeling we'll, we'll get notes on these eventually, how we say them differently, even PR and Pilar and, and so on. But I guess that's just part of the charm of us. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like Atlanta. I don't know. Maybe I was just like, let's see what the other teams are up to, um, which makes me think we do have a couple of repeats. One was the Mets, and there is another one up the line. But who who would you rank as the third best offense? Third best? And I'm a little bit surprised that I have them even this far down. But I do the New York Yankees. Now, there is a future in which, very possible future in which the Yankees end up with nine guys who hit 20 home runs this season. I mean, they are... They are. They have a stacked lineup for sure. The only reason I have them even this far down is because of the the risk, both the injury risk and the performance risk of mainly of Gary Sanchez and of Giancarlo Stanton. I mean, is Stanton going to be in the lineup? That's the question. If he's in the lineup, that's a huge deal. That's a big deal. He he should be tremendous again. I mean, at some point you worry about all the injuries catching up to him. I mean, how old is that guy? Stanton? I think he's let's see. 30? 31? Feels like he's been around forever now. Yeah, 31 years old. So I mean Stanton, you worry about the injuries catching up to him eventually. If he gets healthy through this year, you feel a lot better about it, right? But you do wonder, is he gonna be able to get through the entire season? He's now missed most of what the past two seasons. Yep. Been a long time since he's played a long time within a single season. And if he's not in there, there is a bit of a drop-off between the next guy. I mean, you have, I mean, who, I guess Brett Gardner is the, is the immediate guy who steps in, ends up playing some left field. They end up being able to move around the DH spot a little bit, which does benefit the team on the whole. You like to get Judge in there a little bit and Voight in there a little bit. And, and you know, a guy like LeMay, even let him DH here and there as he deals with, you know, tick attack injuries. I don't know if they're going to be able to hold on to, uh, all their outfielders right now, who's going to end up being their their fifth outfielder is kind of a question. It'll be interesting to see if they decided to stick with Bruce, Jay Bruce, or um, Mike Talkman. Mike Talkman. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to keep Mike Talkman as their fifth outfielder. There's, you know, rumblings that they like. That they like. Who's the other guy? 
Oh, it's killing me. Tyler Wade? The guy who was on the Reds, he's a jerk. Everyone hates him. Oh. <laughs> Derek Dietrich. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, I don't know if the Yankees are going to be able to keep Mike Talkman on the roster as their fifth outfielder. I mean, there are rumblings that they like Jay Bruce or Derek Dietrich because they can play first base. I'm kind of double as the backup first baseman there. I don't know if that matters that much if you really like Talkman more than those guys, which I think I do, especially, but he's, but he's out of options is the deal there. So you risk losing whoever doesn't make the roster from that group. It's not great if you lose Stan. And the bigger problem is, is just that the injury risk of the rest of the roster, right? Aaron Hicks has been injured. Aaron judge has been injured. There are more guys that can go down. Uh, Gio Urshela seems to always deal, be dealing with stuff. And eventually you run out of impact performers there. Catcher is also a bit of a question. I mean, I still like Gary Sanchez to be roughly what he's been, which is, you know, a powerful dude who doesn't hit for much average and strikes out a ton. I think that's probably who he continues to be. But if they get to the point where he really falls out of favor, I don't love Kyle Higashioka. Is that how we're saying it? I mean, I like him because he's Garrett Cole's buddy and that's cool. And I like that they go way back. That's very fun. I love him in the playoffs. Like he seems kind of a classic, like Austin Barnes type where, He's going to end up starting every day in the playoffs, and that's fine for some reason because the Yankees are the Yankees, and they're going to survive it, and they're going to probably thrive off him being a better game manager. But if he's in there, I don't know that I love him being in there for you know, 80, 90 starts during the regular season. They did sign Robinson Chirinos, who has been an underrated offensive catcher over the years, but he's 37 years old, and you know his son is good buddies with Juan Soto. Like I'm just not sure he's going to, be, he's going to hold up at this point, but we'll see or whether or not he's even going to be on the roster. So, I mean, that's kind of my worry is that, is that spot, is that catcher spot. Yeah, catcher depth really does seem critical that almost like teams want to build it like they would a pitcher, and uh, or pitching depth, rather. And Sanchez is just a mystery to me. He's, like The Yankees are so good at developing guys over the course of their careers. They're plucking guys out like Gio Urshela is an amazing example. I think projections constantly underestimate what he can do, uh, although, he, like you were saying, he does get nicked up here and there. Uh, but even at third base, he can be pretty good. Um, he's a great example of that. Talkman's another one they plucked from the Rockies. He was dealing with like weird shoulder stuff last year, I think, which is apparently healed. So that'll be interesting to see because like, you were saying he is out of options and that can be trouble. But Sanchez, like they for all the guys they pluck out, even Voight, they got him for basically uh, next to nothing relative to what he's produced to Giovanni Gallegos. All these guys. Yeah, both are good though. Both are good. Don't you know? Don't knock guy. It was too much. He was just hurt. He's coming back. He's got an arm. I I like him, but I think that there was a a clear winner when it comes to what Void has done for them. But you you prefer the American League home run leader to the uh, a middle reliever who was hurt for most of the season. Well, uh, most of the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, Gary Sanchez though. Yeah, he's just befuddling. Like his strikeout rate has gone up each of the last, like every year since 2017. And generally not a good trend. His ISO is still over 200, like still well above average. His BABIP, we've mentioned that a couple times now. In his bad years, it's been below 200. In his good years, it's like barely pushed 300. And I just, I don't know what to make of him. Maybe it's just time to accept him as a guy who can mash the ball when he connects, but he might not connect very much. so I don't know, I guess there's balance and, and some frustration. I, certainly living where I do, I can hear the frustration too about Sanchez as a player. Uh, and I get it, but also like, man, what a thing to be able to complain about. Yeah, right. You're, you're 
your catcher who hits 25 home runs a year isn't isn't quite up to snuff for you. Yeah, I let another pass ball by. Is he is he good defensively? I don't really. I'll be honest. I don't watch the Yankees a whole lot because I hate them, and they're good, and that can be frustrating. <laughs> but Gary, so I haven't seen a lot of Gary Sanchez behind the plate. He doesn't look like he moves very well back there. He doesn't look like yeah. he's a good defender, is he? That's generally the knock against him that it's, he doesn't play an aesthetically pleasing defensive catcher. Uh, he has worked on certain things. He still has pass balls get through. People have questioned uh, the, the way he kind of manages through the game or they wonder if his hitting bothers him too much and he's thinking about that too much to make him a good defender. I, like, to me, I, I, don't, I don't care about that too, too much. I think, he's, I think there's a lot of value in, in still what he provides. Um, I don't watch a lot of Yankees games most days either, mostly because of MLB's blackout rules with MLB TV, <laughs> uh, which I, I guess... Yeah, we MLB, we love you, but let us love you. Um, I think we're missing one cog. I have all the same doubts about the Yankees you do, which is why they did not really enter my top five because they've run it through the last couple of years where they just keep finding guys to produce. I just don't know how long that can last Why? where the best indicator of future injury is past injury, right? So it's like you have guys like Judge and Stanton. It's like they were doing yoga this offseason, I think, which is kind of cool. Uh, that's something I've written about as players uh, being able to do to possibly help them understand the way their body moves a little bit more. I don't know if that's going to be the key. It's yoga or it's Pilates. It's, it's one or the other. It's every offseason is yoga yeah. or it's Pilates. Harper's done Pilates. Uh, I know that in the past. Uh, but we have not spoken about Glaber Torres yet, who, like Ozzy Albies, is 24. Like Ozzy Albies, came up very young. And... I think people want to make, if they want to really dig into him, they kind of split hairs with how he performed against the Orioles two seasons ago versus the rest of the league. Which, if you haven't looked up those <laughs> numbers, they're like video game-ish against the Orioles. But the bottom line is... Yeah, that was yeah really and the bottom line, he's still going to get to play them. He's still going to get to play them. He's still going to get to play in Camden Yards where the ball flies in the summer because it's so hot and it's just the, the park is conducive to that kind of uh, air ball play. I think he's growing into something steady, though. As a player, like last year was really weird. He dealt with a couple of injuries. He couldn't hit for power the same way. But when he came back, he was hitting. He also raised his walk rate. And again, a small sample size. Of course, that's the caveat with everything this year, right? And going into 2021. But I think if he takes a step forward in how he takes pitches at the plate on top of his hit tool, on top of his ability to drive the ball, on top of his ability to at least stick it short, like that's going to be a player who I feel like we're going to overlook because he isn't Stanton or Judge and we don't have to talk about him on the IL, but he's going to be so important for that team. Yeah, I love Glaber Torres. I mean, like you said, his walk rate went up to 13.8% this year, up from 79 the year before and 8.7% as a rookie. I and mean, that's a huge jump. At the same time, he would cut down on his strikeouts down to 17.5% for 21%. His BABIP was low, lower than you expect for a guy who runs as well as he does, which is to say, okay. And I think you see those numbers improve a little bit. He was beat up a little bit this last season. He's not going to have a 125 ISO again. Like, dude is strong. He can, he has power. He's going to, his power is going to come back. It would have come back over a longer season. I'm not really worried about that. That number is such an aberration that it's, it makes me worry less about it. It's like, it was so low that I'm not even worried yep. about it because there's no way he's going to be a 125 ISO guy. Like, that's not going to happen. Not after two straight full seasons of having ISO over 200, like slugging in the over 500. Like, that's he's going to return 
maybe not to those levels. I think he will return to those levels, but even worst case, he's going to improve. He'll be much closer to where he was in those seasons. And if he combines that with his improved approach, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a really, really yeah. good player. That's, that's a really like strong player. Superstar status, a guy who walks uh, double digits, who strikes out less than 20%, who ISO is at least league average around 180. I'm going to say higher than that too, though. And like, I, I don't know. I just, it's also, we talked about aesthetically pleasing with Gary Sanchez and his game and whether or not he achieves that. Uh, Torres, I think, you know, is if, if he does take this step forward in plate approach, it's really appealing to think of that uh, idea of swing less, hit more, where it's like guys really tune into what they can drive and that really drives their game and kind of helps them take the next level. Um, I think the Yankees fit in nicely there. I think you definitely accounted for the way that their injuries could really push them off the rails for at least extended periods of time while guys get healthy or guys cycle through whatever issues they may be dealing with. Uh, But that really leaves us with a a top two. So who falls into your your second spot here in terms of the top five offenses in baseball? My second spot is there. You you almost can't even call them a rival, but they are a division rival, or they will be soon, the Toronto Blue Jays. I love what the Blue Jays have done this winter as far as as far as their lineup goes. And they're one of the few teams that has not only a strong starting nine, but they've got they've got some leeway. They have some backups who could step in and pick up the slack. No problem. I mean, Randall Gritchick right now, he's a 20 home run guy who is gonna be a strong platoon player for them. He's gonna end up seeing a fair amount of playing time. And if he ends up having to play every day, that's fine. They have Alejandro Kirk who is going to be one of our, one of the cult players in the game. People are going to love this guy. He's going to get some time at, at DH. We'll probably get some time at catcher eventually. And he's not really in the starting lineup from the jump. What they do have is just a tremendous lineup one through nine. Now you have I mean, George Springer and Marcus Simeon are huge gets, right? These are guys who are still relatively in their prime. Simeon's been up and down. You know, he has that one MVP style season, 7.6 F war. I think it was, or something close to that. And then he's had a bunch of kind of three-war seasons. I think he'll be better this year. I am a believer in Semyon. I think he's going to – I think he'll get closer. I don't know that he'll be a seven-war guy again, but I think you can count on him, kind of pencil him in as being a four-war guy. I like him playing second base. He's been a guy who's worked really hard on his defense, and he's gotten better at his defense, but I think he'll, it'll transition even better to second for him. Springer is just one of the classic – you hate to talk about how clutch he is and how good he's been in the postseason because I know we don't believe in those things anymore, but dude's clutch. Like, give it to him. Yeah. He's been so good yeah. in the playoffs. He is such a good leadoff hitter. I mean, teams pretty much across the board, it's really hard to find a good leadoff hitter right now. And it's really hard to find a good center fielder right now. Like, this is, those are very rare things to have in the game right now. And George Springer is one of the best. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be a 350, 360 on base percentage guy. He's going to slug, you know, however many home runs. He's going to slug 450 to 500. Plus, they have, I mean, I love having, with lineups, we love talking about tiers, right? Like, guys, you want a couple of veterans. You want a couple of guys in their prime. Ideally, some of your best players are in their prime. And then you want some younger guys who are, who are still on the on the up and up. The Blue Jays now have Springer, who's kind of at the tail end of his prime. They have Semyon, who is still again, kind of in his prime at the tail end of his prime. And their young guys are coming into it. Kevin Biggio, Vlad, Bo Bichette. 
These guys are only getting better and they're already darn good. There's kind of no ceiling on this unit right now because of those guys. Even Lourdes Gurriel is a guy who's who's made massive improvements the last couple of years. I mean, they they really, I mean, even if you count Gurriel in this group, they really do feel, now they have, you know, little Gurriel, they got Springer in center. They feel like a little mini Astros, right? Don't they feel like kind of the newest version of that team? They really do. I guess maybe a little more pedigree. I don't know that people knew older Gurriel the way that they'll know, that they'll know some of the other guys here uh, playing around with the Jays. But it does feel like that, that where it's kind of like this mixed group of guys, uh, some ascendant players, some guys steady right there uh, at the at the tip of their peak. And there, so I have so many notes. I love this lineup. I have so many notes I want to get to with these guys. You mentioned Alejandro Kirk, Kirk how he's going to be this kind of like cult hero. If you fell in love with Williams Studio a few years ago, and you're still waiting for him to really break it big, uh, just to give or Pablo Sandoval a couple <laughs> years before, if you like your short and stocky, I was, that's what I was gonna say. You like your short and stocky, Alejandro Kirk, five foot eight, two hundred and sixty-five pounds is how he's listed at Baseball Reference. Uh, just a bowling ball of love Thanks. who can who can really hit. He is projected, I think, for more abs from the DH spot than catcher. I'm really curious to see how their catcher spot works out with uh, Danny Jansen, with uh, Reese McGuire, because that duo kind of really worked for them last year. Uh, but when it comes to Springer, so he's 31. He is not moving down the defensive spectrum, which, ha- which happens when guys get older, right? He's going to play center field for at least a couple more years, probably. Uh, and he is, again, somebody else I, I just happened to have written up uh, at Baseball Prospectus recently. You talked about how clutch he is. Well, let's go back to 2017 before we knew anything about the Astros that makes us, uh, that, that puts a profound distaste in our mouth. Let's say that. Um, let me run these numbers by you. His average in 2017, 283. Projected through Pocota this year, baseball prospectus's projection system, 273. OBP, 367, 2017. Projected this year, 369. Slugging, 522, exactly for 2017, and projected for that this year. Runs, the same thing, 112. That's what happened in 2017. That's what he's projected for. RBI, 84 four years ago, 85 this year. Homers, 34 four years ago, 35 this year. This guy is like turning back the clock in a way where he's not like de-aging. He's just not getting older. He like he looks like the Paul Rudd of baseball player stat lines right now. <laughs> well, the thing is about Springer is that he's He's been pretty steady since he came into the league. So if you look at the aging curves, I mean, if he's 31 this year, then you are looking at him kind of turning back the clock to his age 27 season or so, right? Which is 2017. Then you expect at 32, then he'll, he'll play roughly like he was at 26 <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. But he was, yeah. But he's been a five war guy going back to to his first to his first season in the league, really. He, his first season. He only appeared in 78 games and he was worth 1.9 F war. So he's been essentially a four war player the entire time he's been in the league. Theoretically, he, he should be able to make it through this contract more or less being that kind of guy. I mean, he'll probably, he's, he might not be a four or five war guy at the tail end, end of the deal, but at least right now you feel really good about having him. The Astros have done you the favor of protecting him a little bit defensively, keeping him right here or there. He may not be the best defensive center fielder in the world, but he's he's palatable out there. And again, because there just aren't that many guys who can handle the position, you're more than happy to let him be your guy out there. Like I mean, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to root for George Springer. I hate George Springer. 
I hate the Astros. Having to watch him just just slay every single postseason is painful. To have the, to have him on the Blue Jays now, ah, what a treat! Huge change of pace for sure in terms of uh, George Springer enthusiasm. I think maybe for a lot of baseball fans. Uh, and so we're talking about some of the top end guys. We mentioned Gabriel Jr., uh, Teoscar Hernandez too, uh, of course Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The three of those guys, they're only expected uh, through zips, through ATC projections to combine for like five and a half to six wins total. So they could be like a little more than a George Springer. Do you think that's light for those three? Yeah, I I do think that's light. I mean, we've expected more from Vlad for as long as he's been in the league now. He's still 23, 22 years old. He's so young. He's still getting better. To have a guy like Vlad where it feels like the light bulb hasn't totally gone off yet and he's still been a productive regular who hits the ball as hard as anybody in the game, like he's going to explode one of these years. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that guy now. I do think we'll see, we'll see, yeah, Fangrass projects 2.2 war out of him. I think we see, I think we see better than that. Tasker Hernandez, same deal. The thing about Tasker Hernandez's projection is that he's not projected to get much playing time, right? They've only got him getting 70 plate appearances. Is that right? No, uh, out right. of left field, but no, out of left field, right field he's gonna he'll, he's he's getting the majority of his shots there. He's getting like 330 PAs there, and then another like 240 from the DH spot. Yeah, that could be that could be kind of about right for him. I mean, that's part of what I love about this this Blue Jays lineup is you look at the bottom portion of the lineup, right? And you have Guriel, you have Rowdy Telez, you have Tasker Hernandez. These guys are probably going to be hitting five, six, seven, eight in that range, they're all 200 plus ISO guys for three years running now. Like they have ridiculous power in the bottom part of this lineup. And these are the guys that pitchers are going to really want to attack. Cause they're not going to want to attack flat. They're not going to want to attack Springer. They're not going to want to attack Bo Bichette. There's really nowhere to hide in this lineup, you know, except for maybe Reese McGuire when, when he gets in, in there, but that's fine. You give that up for, for, for what you have in the rest of this lineup. I mean, I think that they're those three guys. Who are you talking about? Guriel, Hernandez, and Vlad. Yeah, at five war. Yeah, I think there's. I think they're going to be better than that. I do too. That's why, like, again, I guess kind of a leading question to ask if you think it's light because it just it's one of those where it's like you uh, you look at it, it's like oh that that is that is conservative, uh, and Zips is usually I think on the more aggressive side of projection sometimes, and then ATC is. Uh, it, it kind of averages everything out and, and tweaks the numbers that way. Uh, so to see them that light, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Uh, I think, though, like, you know, we're talking about Springer being a huge veteran piece. We're talking about these other guys who could be more than what we expect if we just looked at a, a projection uh, projection standpoint. Is Bo Bichette the real storyline here? We've heard about Vlad to the point where we've almost gotten fatigued with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But Bo Bichette looks like he is amazing. He himself is projected for like four wins. Are we underselling Bo Bichette in favor of some of just the backlog of great names in this lineup? Yeah, we might be. I mean, Bichette doesn't have the track record yet. Like We haven't really been able to see a ton from him yet because he just came into the league in 2019 for the latter half of the year when he was awesome. And then, you know, this year we only got 29 games out of him. So there's a little bit of the, you know, let's see him healthy. Let's see him get through a whole season. And with shortstops, 
you just I just worry about that a little bit more than I do with with Vlad, a guy who's going to be able to be he's going to play first or he's going to DH. He'll get to rest a fair amount. Like I'm not as worried about losing him to injury as I am with Bichette. And I just I just want to see him play a full season. I think if yeah, if he's out there the full year, the the sky's the limit for him, right? He's a 134 WRC plus hitter for his career right now. The problem is that his career is only 75 games. Yeah. So I yeah. just just want to see it. Part of the appeal to Bo Bichette for me is, uh, again, kind of living where I do in, in New Jersey, uh, I had close proximity to AA Trenton. So when the uh, when the Blue Jays AA team would roll through to play the Yankees AA team, I got to see some of these guys. I don't think I have you know this incredible discerning prospect eye, but Bo Bichette was a guy who just looked different, right? Like you can tell the guys who really stand out and the way he hit the ball, the way he could you know, he, I think he smashed a double off the center field wall that night too. That was just shy of a homer that I think that's the appeal, I guess, is, is seeing just up close how, how much one guy can do, uh, which makes me think like, yeah, wow. If, if Vlad really steps up too, uh, if Kevin Biggio maintains what he is and you get to Teoscar Hernandez really kind of elevating and being the guy he was last year, even though he can be streaky over an extended period of time, like, wow, like so much firepower in this lineup, so much appeal. And, and give me Guriel. Guriel hasn't had a full season yet either. Dude looks really good. He looks really athletic. He looks strong. I, I'm excited to see what he gets, what he does in a full season. Yeah, he's also, I guess he's almost like, almost forgettable and forgettable is, is the operative word there, right? It's relative. Cause you're not forgetting any of these guys cause they are that good, but it is like, where do you pitch around this lineup? Do you hope Reese McGuire is stepping up to the plate that day as their catcher? <laughs> you have to, there's really nowhere else to, there's really nowhere else to hide. And, and again, Alejandro Kirk is on the bench. You have Randall Gritchick, who is kind of an all or all or nothing kind of guy, but he's, he's the guy who's on the bench. Who's going to be ready to step in. I don't know that I love their their reserves in the infield, but they have a fair amount of flexibility now with Semyon and with Guriel. Like they have some coverage with these guys. They do, and Semyon's one of those guys who can really just go out there and play every day, right? Like if he gets the volume, he's going to produce, and like he relied on that in his career season a couple of years ago. But he can play a lot and he can handle it. And you're assuming he's going to play pretty well at second base. Uh, I, th- I still think it's extremely weird. Nobody wanted him to be their shortstop, but the, the, everybody else's loss is the, the Jays win here. Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally right. I mean, it's cool that he's willing to move to second, and I think it makes sense in the long term if you think that Bo Bichette is your guy, is going to be your shortstop of the future. I mean, they have a bunch of a bunch of their prospects are like semi shortstops, or Elvis Martinez and um, Austin Austin Martin are guys who've played shortstop in the past, but. Bichette's probably the guy who's going to stick there long-term. He's probably the one who has the best chance of sticking there long-term. And if that's the case, you don't really want to rock the boat with him. You want to keep him in that position. You want to keep him growing defensively in that spot. And so it's great that Semyon's willing to move over, but he also worked really hard to get decent defensively at shortstop, and he did. I mean, what are the Reds thinking, man? I just can't I just can't <laughs> believe it. Why? Do, how did the Reds not sign Marcus Semyon? Like, one year. Dude, signed for one year. Yeah, really. I, just, I just don't get it. It's like... There's no team out there that would have given him one year twenty million. Like you would have looked silly when the when the twins got Simmons for ten million and and who was the other guy that signed that same day? Uh Tommy Listella got a great deal making six million a year. So you would have looked a little silly for paying Simeon twenty million. But man, wouldn't it have been worth it for one year just to get that guy in the middle of middle of your lineup? I mean, come on. I just I just don't get it. Reds, man. I mean, I'd love to see Kyle Farmer become a regular. That would be cool. That would be a great story. 
but you can't you, you can't drum those things up yourself they gotta happen naturally right you're not you're not gonna it's gonna get on. hurt or something <laughs> yeah come on uh the the reds uh, i guess as an aside here are, are really kind of a bummer because they did seem to be going for it for a couple of years there and now they're like well we really have to peel back um but again i guess everybody else's loss is really the jays gain here it really is and this lineup is going to be very good i wish their starting rotation were better because then they'd really be threatening that division. You know, it's gonna be, they're gonna try to do enough with it, and and the lineup's gonna keep them afloat. And really, the sky's the limit. This could easily be the best offense in the American League. I agree. And even on their their rotation, that you know, backed by Rogers, they could probably add a guy at the deadline if somebody becomes available. Uh, hopefully, it happens. I don't know. I, again, it would be, uh, you know, blasphemy. I guess uh, in some sense, like 1993 is seared into my heart, but. Uh, as a Phillies fan, but yeah, it would be a lot of fun to really see them ascend, to really see them challenge for the division again, which leaves us really just one team who you probably figured out at this point is number one, but who is your number one lineup in baseball, TC? It's the Chicago Cubs. (laughs) Uh, If only, if only. Uh, No, it's the Dodgers. It's the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, what other team is there? They have Mookie Betts, who's probably the Still probably the second best player in the game right now. If you, you know, if you take age and everything aside and you just have players playing in a vacuum and you just need a guy for this season, he's probably he's probably second behind Mike Trout. Uh you have Cody Bellinger, who while he kind of had a bit of a down year last year, he's still awesome and is still gonna be a major piece of that team and still has he's still a former MVP. They got Justin Turner back. People think that he's declining. I'm not so sure. I think his, his batted ball numbers are still pretty good. You know, maybe he loses some, I think the biggest fear with him is that he loses a step defensively, but offensively, I think he's still, he's still got it. And he's still going to be a big time middle of the order piece for them. Max Muncy guy who gets on base a ton hits for major power. I mean, Will Smith is going to be one of the, he's one of the best offensive catchers, if not the best offensive catcher in the game right now, he was insane last year. I mean, Small sample, so you don't know what to believe. But he was insane last year. They were comic booky, right? Cartoonish with what he put up last year. I'm um, getting what eight homers in <laughs> in 137 at bats or plate appearances. You know, 163. Will Smith had a 163 WRC plus last year. That's the same as Nelson Cruz. Yep. You, if you can have Nelson Cruz as your catcher, my God, <laughs> like that's a really, really freaking good player. He's now had. His his he has a three oh six career ISO. He's a three oh six career ISO. I mean, through more games than Boba Shit. Three more games than Boba Shit. I mean, he's really, really good. And to to put him in in that order, where you can rest him as much as you need to. You have Austin Barnes, who people love in LA for whatever reason, who can come in and spell him when you need to. Corey Seager is like the sixth guy we mentioned on this team, and he's a guy who can easily put up MVP kind of numbers. He's he's back now. He's healthy again. He he dragged them through the postseason. This lineup just doesn't really quit. I mean, yeah, AJ Pollock's gonna get hurt. It'll be fine. You know, Chris Taylor will step in, and you know, Gavin Lux is gonna end up being an All Star. There's just no quit in this lineup. There's nothing not to like about it. What's not to like about this about this Dodgers team? Well, it was funny where you're saying there's no quit. It's almost like an exhaustion point, right? Where it's like. Good Lord, like we thought the Jays were giving going to give teams a hard time, but really there is no easy out here. You still, and we, we've talked about depth, one through eight, one through nine, but like 
Edwin Rios behind Justin Turner to spell him can absolutely crush it. He might not hit a ton, but when he does, it it is a bomb. It, it's it's powerful, right? You're talking about Taylor being able to be deployed all over. Matt Beatty came in and played really well in a limited sample last year. Uh, Zach McKinstry. You have, you, have, you have Sheldon Noose, who, you know, it's a bit reductive to say that Sheldon Noose is going to be the next Max Muncy, the next Justin Turner, but isn't he? Isn't he exactly that guy? He's like, <laughs> he's like a mid-20s corner infielder, can play kind of all over the place, has a good came eye to play, A's. came from the A's, <laughs> gets for a good power. He just has to put it together and, and get consistent playing time. I mean, yep. if he becomes an all-star, I won't even bat an eye. We're really hitting on everything here with this team and that, like the Jays, but again, like a, just another caliber, a little bit higher up, right? You have uh, some older guys who are, are still awesome. Uh, Max Muncy is kind of among that uh, that group, uh, despite maybe we don't think of him that way because of his late breakout, but he's 30. Uh, he'll play most of this year at 30. Cody Bellinger is now like your seasoned like young veteran. You've got the uh, same guy like that with Corey Seager. You've got youth with Lux and Smith. Uh, I think that there is a Bellinger bounce back happening. I think it would be hard not to. We talked about it with Pete Alonso in regard to where he settles in. I don't think Cody Bellinger is a 239 hitter. Uh, I don't, you know, it, again, we, we've talked about Babip a lot this week uh, in, in an interesting turn. Uh, but again, he 245 for him last year on balls in play. He also had just a note about Bellinger. He had some really bad uh, umpire error luck last year. He saw more missed calls than any other player in baseball last year. Oh, really? Yeah, more umpires made the wrong call on balls and strikes when he was up at the plate more than any other hitter in, in game in the game. And second on that list was Max Muncy. And you, you've written about that, right? You've had, you have pieces out there on that. Yeah, and I've got another one coming up in the next couple of weeks from Pitcher List, uh, on Pitcher List, about uh, yeah, looking at this umpire error and how it affects, nice. affects these hitters at the plate. So now we know one thing to go back and read and one thing to look forward to. That's fascinating that two of those guys are on the same team. I, I thought about the Phillies a couple of years ago in terms of stealing strikes, you know, taking, getting balls called on the, in, in what's the shadow zone, right? Kind of like the edge of the plate. Um, and you're saying that Dodgers kind of had the inverse where it went against them last year. You know, it was both ways. He, he had some extra, he had some strikes not called his balls and he had some, some balls called his strikes. So with, with both those guys, they kind of went both ways for him, which just, you just kind of get like a, like strike zone dysmorphia or something. Yeah. You, you really, it can really affect you at the plate because you don't know what the zone's going to be. You're getting, and you can see last year, Cody Ballinger had some real, I mean, he's like this a little bit, but his body language at the plate, there were lots of times when he just, he was frustrated. He clearly didn't know what the zone was supposed to be. And that's, that was the case for him last year. He didn't right, know and what that's, the zone that's was. That's such a huge deal. Like one of those things, I, I love this because it's not something we can quantify, right? It's not something that like uh, I think Scott Boris said it a couple years ago in regards to maybe it was the Astros before their World Series win. Just like just getting to the park and knowing your role every day is so incredible. And I think it really translates here. If Bellinger's going up, being like I'm a freaking major league hitter. Like, did you? See, I had an OPS over one last season. You're gonna tell me I don't know what the strike zone is? Like, how frustrating that must be for a guy with that kind of mind mindset up at the plate. Uh, really fascinating uh, take from him, and yet. He still walked 12% of the time. He still struck out under 20% of the time. They still won the World Series, which is like why we're talking about them in this context, right? They have these quote-unquote flaws that are not really blemishes. The one spot that I want to see the Dodgers kind of improve in is just the second base spot. I want to see them turn Gavin Lux loose. That's kind of the thing that they, to make this lineup like 100% working at all levels, 
it's time for Gavin Lux to become the guy that they think he's going to be. And they haven't really given him the opportunity to, to cut loose at second. And now without Kike Hernandez, they don't have as much of a, a safety net for him anymore. So it's going to be his time this year, I think. And, and, you know, Chris Taylor is going to be in there a fair amount. Chris Taylor, he'll also go to left field a bunch, but it's time that we see Lux. Lux is going to have to kind of sink or swim as their everyday second base guy. And assuming that he's going to become, you know, he's a top prospect in baseball. He has looked awesome at times. I think he's going to be able, I think he's going to be fine. That's just kind of the next step to really turn this lineup into what is legitimately eight all-star potential players. Yeah, I, I agree for sure. I like the concept of turning him loose as the phrase that we really need to apply here because we talked about this last week with the rotation, right? That, um, you know, they have guys like Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin who have not been turned loose at all. They just keep adding these pitchers. Tony Gonsolin's going to be 27 this year. He's going to play most of the season at 27. So if they can turn Gavin Lux loose much sooner, I think that's going to be way better for him, for the team, for baseball, really. Um, and, it, you know, we mentioned Mookie at the top of this team. Uh, my note on Mookie for the rundown was just Mookie in all caps with an exclamation <laughs> point, uh, which is, of course, thrilling that he'll be back and that he'll be there for quite some time. You know, the craziest thing about this Dodgers team is, you know, in the World Series, they win the World Series, and we talk about Bellinger's defense, and we talk about Betts' defense, and we talk about Betts' base <laughs> running. Like, we don't even get to their to their bats in that series. I mean, they just, they're so good, and they can beat you at every single level. And that's the, like, that's the real key about being uh, an all around superstar. Like those two guys are, it's not that you're doing all three, that you're winning all three levels at all times. It's that you can win at any level at any time. Like they can win a game with their defense. They can win a game with their legs. They can win a game with their bat. There's just no stopping them. Were they your first team? Were they your top, top lineup? They were, they were my top lineup. The other two teams that we didn't talk about that were on my list were the twins who uh, we, we've talked about them a good bit. I feel like, you know, we, we tried to avoid repeating ourselves, but we're also in a state of baseball where only a handful of teams are really going <laughs> for it. And we're seeing that kind of shake out in this power balance, right? Uh, I like the Twins, but I think they're going to be hoping for health with Donaldson, with Buxton, with Mitch Garver and his uh, concussion history. I think there could be a bit of an outfield shuffle when it comes to who they turn loose because Alex Kirilov, one of their top prospects, is set to start the season. Uh, with the team right now, that's what it looks like. They're going to buck that service time manipulation trend. He has to, right? Uh, Trevor Larnock gets at the door. I mean, that's the, the, the yeah. thing about Kirilov is if you think he's good enough to play in the playoffs for you, as he was last year when he made yeah. his debut in the postseason, then he's got to be good enough on, on day one, right? Like, how do you how do you sell that? I just I feel like he's got to be on the lineup in the lineup day one now, if if nothing else, because the optics will be terrible in light of the the Mariners' comments. Even though that has no like direct bearing on the Twins, I still think. Right. They're going to want them out there. I love the Twins. The twins were my, twins yep. were my sixth team. They just missed the top five for, for me. They could easily be in it. I've got no real qualms with them. My only thing with the Twins is I'm not sure who in that lineup really carries them, right? I'm not sure they have a real MVP kind of guy in that lineup. Nelson Cruz can be for sure with the bat, of course. Donaldson's been that guy in the past. Byron Buxton is maybe the guy. I mean, we talked about the, I talked about levels earlier. The Twins are, are a team where their veterans and their young guys are the ones who you really like the most, right? Donaldson and Nelson, you really love. I love Kirilov coming up. He has some real potential. Royce Lewis, once he gets there, Trevor Larnack in the outfield also has that kind of potential. Luis Arias is projected by just about every system to win the batting title, even though he might not start yep. every day. Mm-hmm. I, I just worry about their the guys who are in their prime now, Sano and Buxton, are they the type of guys who can really 
lead this team. And I don't know that that's a prerequisite. It just, for me, it was just something that, you know, with these top teams, you're looking for any kind of blemish, right? Anything to kind of right. knock him down. And for me, that's what it was with the twins. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Like my first note on them was hoping for health question mark. Like, and I think you're right. I think we're, we're really going to see, cause I think that'll really kind of line up with who does carry them. Cause Cruz, you're talking about MVP type numbers. The DHs are never going to be the MVP, right? But if he's putting up three wins as the hitter, if he's still that 160, 140 WRC plus guy, he's going to be a big bat. Uh, but again, they might need more than one just amazing performance from him. Uh, which really makes me think of the Astros because they are kind of a counter to this. They they really are kind of running it back minus Springer. They're everybody else is going to be there. The projected F four leaders in order: Bregman, Altuve, uh, Alvarez, Correa, Tucker, Brantley. Um, Michael Brantley, I just love as a guy, <laughs> right? Like as a hitter, he's just like you don't see a lot of Michael Brantleys in the league. Um, also, they have a really interesting aesthetic. We've talked about that a couple of times today. And they have a pure DH-only hitter in Jordan Alvarez. And they have a pure speed guy at the top in Miles Straw, who they want to let lead off and, and maybe run wild. Wouldn't that be so fun and such a change of pace? Um, the team just kind of finding ways to zag when everybody else is zigging, uh, finding guys who will kind of plug away. They have Abraham Toro, who's very interesting, a guy who's hit really at every level except the majors so far, which is how Kevin Goldstein, uh, formerly with the Astros, right now at Fangraphs, evaluated them in his own podcast. Uh, that's how he evaluated Toro, saying like he's just hasn't done it at the majors yet. So if he puts things together, that'll be a very interesting piece for them too. Yeah, I mean the Astros have some real stars. Obviously, I love Kyle Tucker. I think he's going to be has the chance to really come into himself this year. There's just a couple things about the Astros that I don't love. First of all is letting Springer walk. I think it's tough. Why let Springer walk and then pay Brantley what they paid Brantley? I just, it's a little bit confusing to me. You can find corner outfielders. As I said before, there aren't that many center fielders out there. You're going with the 26 year old unproven guy in Miles Straw who has zero power. power. He is a 20 on, on, the, on the scattering scale for power. He has no power. You hope he hits 290 or so because of his speed. Defensively, he should be good. But I just, you know, he's without any power that really limits his ceiling. He's you're hoping he's going to be a, a two war guy out there in center. The catcher spot, they're also giving way to defense. I mean, Castro is better than Jason Castro is better than his reputation uh, at the plate. And Martin Maldonado has been good at times, but they're both glove first catchers. And I'm just not sure that you can give two positions away to defense, especially when the Astros weren't that good last year. I mean, they were 18th in the game by F4. Their, their offense was, they were 17th by WRC plus they were 14th by run scored. And I'm just not sure I see the improvements from them. I mean, they lose Springer. Altuve is probably not going to be a 77 WRC plus guy again. And Carlos Correa, you hope isn't going to be a 98 WRC plus guy again. Those guys are both better than that. But Altuve is also getting older. You don't know that. I don't know that he's going to re- return to the real prime of where he was before. He's, you know, he seems battle scarred. He seems a little bit hurt by everything that's gone on with this Astros team. He's got to <laughs> see if he can rebound a little bit. Correa, I believe in him, but he's a guy who gets hurt all the time. He's very, very rarely been healthy for a full season. And if those guys aren't going full tilt, I don't know where the improvement comes from. I mean, I mean, Jordan Alvarez is the guy that can really step in and be an MVP kind of hitter. But even he is just stepping into Springer's kind of production slot there. And he just had 
surgery on both of his knees. He's he's they've already said they can't play him in the field pretty much. He's going to be a DH only guy. So he's taking Springer's production. I just don't know where the other improvement is coming from to get them out of the middle of the pack. Yeah, I agree. There is a, a big question of whether this is really the last hurrah for this group. Uh, I think we've even mentioned this in the past where like maybe they kind of dismantle and retool or, or rebuild a little bit given that they are kind of development machines for players all over the field and given that they have a, a, a way of finding guys. Uh, but you talked about Alvarez. Yeah, you don't usually see uh, 23-year-olds who have had two knee surgeries who are going to be long-term cogs, right? But he's still projected for anywhere between like three and four wins as just a hitter, which is kind of incredible. Uh, I just think last hurrah is really the phrase I'm going to hang on for this club, that if they get this last chance, uh, maybe they put together really a top offensive season. Uh, so that really does it for the offenses throughout baseball. Um uh, there are a few other smaller notes here with this week in baseball. We have things like the Hunter Dozer extension. Um, can I just ask you, TC, did the Hunter Dozer exp- extension make you just go, what? <laughs> I mean, a little bit more like, why? I mean, <laughs> I don't really see the, there's maybe not a whole lot of point in, in wrapping up his, his salary here. I mean, he's 29. He's going to be 30, I think. Uh, yeah. Or 29. He'll turn 30 this year. So he's an older, older debut guy. I mean, this deal, it's a four-year deal, 25 million guaranteed. There's a fifth year for 10 million. Uh, that's a team option. It comes with a $1 million buyout. So they're basically buying out his three arbitration seasons plus getting one extra season of control. Well, I guess getting two extra seasons of control uh, considering that's second year uh, team option, the team option season, which will be in his age 32 season. So yeah, I mean, I guess you get some cost certainty here, which is kind of the reason why you want to do this. If you're the Royals, if you're Dozier, really the same deal. You want to know, you want to know how much money you're making, right? Better to better yeah. to lock those those values in if you feel good about it. And it's not an exorbitant value at any year. I mean, it'll be three point two five million this year, then up to four point five, seven point two five, nine million, and then it's the ten million dollar option. So, you know, at no point in this contract is it is it really going to weigh too heavily on the Royals uh, payroll? If they need to move them, they could probably move them. I think it's really just kind of a, kind of a way to build, you know, build a positive relationship with your player and with your teams and to give some, and to lock in some cost certainty here. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Whitmerfield deal, right? Late breakout. Uh, let's get this guy some cash. Let's get us some cost certainty. Uh, just it it came out, and I think that was kind of everybody's collective response was what, why, who? Uh, but uh, on another note, with the Royals, uh, Kelvin Herrera announced his retirement from baseball this uh, year. Uh, what what do you think with him from the Royals? He he played from what 2012 to 2017, pretty dominant overall, pretty great seasons those years. Um, what do you think about Herrera calling it quits at this point? Yeah, I mean, I'm sad to see him go. He was a he was a rare impact you know, setup man, impact middle reliever. He was a guy who had some really incredible years with the Royals. I mean, he was along with Wade Davis and uh, Greg Holland, part of that bullpen that was a foundational unit for back-to-back pennant winning teams for the Royals in 2014, 2015. I mean, it's rare to have a bullpen really be a foundational unit for a contender like that, but they were, I mean, the three of those guys, they were insane and they, and they, 
really made the league kind of rethink what can be done with the bullpen and how far a bullpen can take you in the playoffs. And, you know, Greg Holland was the biggest piece of that because he was so dominant from, you know, 2013 through 2015 or so. Uh, and Wade Davis was kind of secondary because he stepped into the closer role when, when Holland went out, especially, you know, for the 2015 playoffs, but Herrera was right there with them. And, you know, he was the guy, he was kind of the first guy out of the pen for those guys, for that, for those teams. And we're talking about, so 2012 to 2017, seven years, he averaged 69 appearances per season, 2.81 ERA, 3.15 FIP, 48% ground ball percentage, hit 25 and a half holes or saves per season. So it's not like he wasn't playing a big part of their back end, you know, saving games. He was, he was a big part of it. 24% strikeout rate, which was kind of average now, but back then, you know, way back five years ago, it was still above average. 7.4% walk rate was also better than average. He has 67 ERA minus. 67, that's, that's incredible. It's 33% better than average. One point more F4 per season over those seven years, or over those six years, rather. Uh, you know, to be a one-war reliever for six years running, that's pretty That's pretty insane. That's a, that's a big-time guy and and i'm always going to remember kelvin herrera because of his, the part that he played on these royals teams yeah pretty big role as a, as a one-wing guy out of the pen pretty reliable for such an extended stretch it's really unprecedented for a lot of reasons and for a lot of teams and even a lot of players individually you just don't see it even if they they move places and i guess his retirement is also like you were you were kind of hinting at this that it really is the end of an era in a sense, right? Those Royals teams are not together anymore. Those relievers have not been the same since. And I don't know that we see another team win the World Series like they won the World Series. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it. They were a very particular team. I mean, they had their their group of position players kind of all come up together. They were a different kind of group. They were a contact first team. I mean, the Royals have always kind of done things their own way. Nowadays, we know that we know that <laughs> it's harder to bring up position player groups all together like that. It's together. just, it's just too expensive. I mean that the Astros and Cubs kind of followed, followed the Royals in that way, but it's, it's, it's now just become really expensive. And I don't know that we do see another team quite like that Royals team. It was, it was a pretty unique team for this era. And, and unfortunately, you know, Herrera, he's retiring pretty young here. I think he's only 34. I mean, he got traded to the, to the Nats, uh, in the middle of the 2018 and he did fine with them. And then the last two years of the white Sox, he really wasn't able to get healthy and, you know, things kind of just went South for him and, you know, good on him for deciding to hang it up. If it feels like now's the time. And uh, yeah, the Royals there, you know, Alex Gordon is now retired. Is Elcides Escobar, is he still playing? Is, I think he's, I think he's done. Right. I don't, I'm not really sure, but he, so maybe hanging on by a hang on somewhere. <laughs> I mean, Salvador Perez and, and, uh, Duffy are, are pretty much the last guys left from that from the era still on the Royals Perez is a they're both free agents at the end of the season so we'll see if they if they hang on there or if the uh, the Royals will have to start totally fresh but they hope to start contending again soon but they'll be doing it a different way for sure it won't be the way that that those guys did it with with Holland and Herrera and Davis and there's a great piece you talked about what that team was and then they've always been kind of laughed at uh, saying they've always done things their own way that's definitely a distinct way uh, if you followed the Royals at all, uh, there's a great Eno Saris piece from years ago uh, about learning the language of the clubhouse that if you are curious and you're very uh, interested in how reporters kind of uh, learn the ropes and talking to uh, these players and, and their approaches and all of that, uh, I, I think that's a fascinating read for anybody. Uh, so one more note here. 
bit of a bummer, I think. AAA season delayed at least a month uh, because of uh, COVID-related reasons, right? And they're looking to use alternate sites again. Uh, we'll be confronting the way that inf information comes out on development of these players, these prospects again, just like, you know, depending on who's willing to talk and who isn't. Uh, what's your read on the AAA season being delayed at least a month here? Yeah, I think it makes sense just for safety reasons. And they still say that they're hoping to get the full season in, even if it means pushing it a little bit later into the into the fall. In terms of a practical effect, I wonder if teams will be a little bit more inclined to get their rookies onto the roster. If guys like, you know, we talked about Alex Kirloff, if there aren't AAA games to go play, if it's just kind of working out at the, at the alternate sites doing inter-squad games and stuff like that, I wonder if teams will push some of these guys and let them get some major league at bats for that first month. I don't know. I would I would think that teams might be a little bit more inclined to to get their rookies under the under the roster first thing, but but maybe not. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really interesting point that you know, maybe like how long can you really go without competitive games if guys are healthy? Uh from a team standpoint, right? They want to get those guys those reps. They want to get them into uh game shape. They want to get them into really learning the curve of MLB and Better to do it earlier in the season than later, I would suppose, for a lot of these clubs, especially if that means that the layoff is longer, that the games maybe aren't as intense, if their ramp-up is affected. Uh, so I think certainly a bummer, but also definitely sensible. I hope that they start you know, a month from now. I hope that everything is good enough and lined up well enough uh, in a reasonable and safe way for them to do that. Uh, that'll about do it for us, though, this week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at BreakingPodPL. You can also email us at breakingpodpl at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tim Jackson Says and at Baseball Prospectus and Pitcher List. TC, where can the good people find you? Uh, you can find me at TC Zanka on Twitter. You can find me in the, in the pages of Trade Rumors and Movie Trade Rumors and Pitcher List and wandering the streets of Washington, D.C. if you come on down this way. <laughs> All right, well, everybody... Make sure to keep an eye out for TC. We'll keep an eye out for you as we meet up again next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you then. Do, 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 do.